Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the GPPR podcast. It's a Republican politics spotlight as we interview Representative Eric Cantor, Governor Mike Huckabee, and Senator Rick Santorum. Our editor-in-chief, Aaron Mullally, was able to speak with Representative Cantor and Senator Santorum, and our executive online editor, Patrick Spencer, along with John Caddick and Jess Clark, interviewed Governor Huckabee. We hope you enjoy tuning in for their takes on the race. Tonight to talk about short-termism. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that, um, going by your definition that you've written about and, and been quoted about, um, that it's kind of the way that the political use of short-termism is kind of using kind of provocative and inciting people's fears over the last um, election cycles, um, and not really look, looking at the the big picture. Not really public officials going back home and explaining what they're trying to get done in D.C. Um, so do you, do you feel that those consequences are playing out now in the presidential election? I, I think, first of all, you, you have to sort of step back and say that, you know, the, the recent developments in the uh, presidential primaries on both sides of the aisle are, they probably um, uh, find a commonality in the fact that people have really lost faith in the institution of government and and politics. And I think that's where so much of the anger and the fear come from, is they've just lost faith. And um, what that means is, um, if if you have someone who's running for office and wants to play to that, um, they can play into that fear, play into that anger, and get a lot of support when they do that. But when you do something like that, it is um, sort of this short-term bypass, if you will, or exit ramp or detour um, instead of trying to go and stick to a long-term vision of where we want to take this country. Uh, And that's my fear about too much short-termism in politics, temptation for um, politicians and leaders to to, uh, go on this off-ramp of short-termism to just... Um, dwell and, and, and sort of envelop themselves in the constituent anger rather than try and respond to that in a solutions-oriented way. Um, so the candidate on the, at least the Republican side that uh, former Governor Bush who said that he wanted to go to make the Republican Party a, um, uh, forget the exact quote, but it party be being for something instead of being against everything, mm-hmm. I think, was a summation of that. And he got out of the race fairly quickly. Uh, so would, would you say that that concerns you? Um, or do, sure. generally, does, does the sure. rhetoric... Sure, uh, sure, sure. It, it concerns me because I'm about, and, and uh, during the time I was in public office, felt that we ought to be about solving people's problems and helping them. Uh, the, the problem is right now the public is so angry at what's going on in Washington. They're angry at the economy. They're angry at some of the policies this administration has been in pursuit of, angry at the Republican response to those policies, and just downright un, uh, dis, un, untrusting of anyone in government right now. Uh, and so I think that the political marketplace, if you will, is rewarding people who are playing into that anger rather than trying to... Um, demonstrate that they're about solving that problem. It also lends itself to those who've been outside the system 
um, who can you know throw rocks at those inside the system. Okay, no right. If you come in with no record, with just rhetoric and attacks, um, it, it, it's sort of ironic that the people are putting their faith and trust in someone without any track record instead of maybe trying to look at those who have been demonstrating this track record of success. And it's, um, it's a very difficult situation. Do you worry about disillusioning a generation of young voters or young conservative voters? But, you know, I think that the thing is, if you look at all the public polling of the millennials, I mean, they're a lot more optimistic about the future of our country. And I think that, you know, technology has really helped fuel a little bit of that optimism and sort of the boundless nature of our country and our system. So in a way, I think that they have a diminished view of government, but it's almost assumed that they're not going to get a lot. But yet... Um, if you if you took a look at it, government really um, and the structure of our country legally has provided a platform for that technology to take off and has been a platform for that opportunity that the millennial generation sees. Um, and I suppose that they just assume at some point uh, Washington will figure it out. Yeah. So, so you have some hope. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm an optimist. Yeah. All right. That's good. Me too. All right, thank you so Thanks. much. Yeah. Okay, terrific. It's nice yeah. to meet you. Governor Huckabee, thank you for sitting down with us. The morning after Super Tuesday, an extremely strong showing by Donald Trump. Is he now the presumptive nominee? Can anyone beat him? Anybody can be beaten. He's quite a bit away from the... Uh, 1,237 votes necessary to secure the nomination. But barring something pretty significant, I think he is certainly positioned to be the nominee. He has won states that Republicans normally don't win. He has won in every part of the country. He has won with every demographic group. Um, He cleaned out through the southern states where normally a guy like Trump would not have done well. He won with evangelicals. He won with women, with men, with Uh, middle class, upper middle class. There's no demographic group that he has not been able to to win votes from. And I think most significantly, he has brought um, record numbers of people out to vote. The Republican numbers are up so dramatically, sometimes 50% and more in a state. And that's largely because of the people who are, are Trump voters. Governor, why do you think it is that evangelical voters have been drawn to Donald Trump in this cycle? Well, evangelical voters have never been monolithic. Even in 2008, when the press assumed that my vote was largely evangelical, it really wasn't. It was more working-class voters, many of whom were evangelical. But the fact is, um, if all the evangelicals had coalesced around me in a way, I'd have been the nominee. The fact is that they were splintered. Some went with Romney, some with McCain, some with Thompson. Um, there are certainly issues that drive a lot of evangelical voters, life and marriage and some of the cultural issues. But evangelicals are also people that have to pay their bills. They have to worry about where their kids can go to college. They, they're concerned about, uh, is their pension plan going to be totally depleted when their company upends them and costs them their job and ships it to Mexico or China? So I think that Donald Trump has tapped into something that is bigger than just the evangelical niche, but more of uh, the frustration of a lot of people in the country. 
the National Review, Lindsey Graham, Marco mm-hmm. Rubio, Jeb Bush, the Republican mainstream, they are vehemently, and I think that's a fair phrase, mm-hmm. vehemently anti-Trump. Yeah. Why is that? Why does he get under their skin? They're not so much afraid that he will lose. They will say, oh, he can't win against Hillary. They're really afraid he will win. And you have to understand that for so long, the Republican Party has been pretty much a party that was driven by the agenda of the donors, carried out by the agenda of the politicians. What they don't understand is that the reason Trump is so uh, strong is because the American people perceive them to be so utterly weak, ineffective, and utterly disconnected from the world they have to live in. We're seeing nothing less than a revolution in America. And the good thing is, it's a bloodless revolution, at least so far. And I hope it will continue to be. But it's a revolution of people who are no longer going to allow the political class, the ruling class, um, to just dictate to them how things are going to be. It's an utter rejection of the very people who are whining and complaining about us having an election. If they put forth better ideas when they had the rule, when they had the, the power, they wouldn't be in this predicament. Rather than blame Trump, they need to blame themselves. They need to be apologizing to America for having built a political environment in which corporate interest and globalist interest were well served, but working class people were getting gut punched and nobody in this town of Washington seemed to care and for the most part were oblivious to it. Building off of that answer, do you think this primary cycle will force the Republican Party to change in any way? Do you think that this cycle is an inflection point for American conservatism? I think it is because Orthodox conservatism has not helped a lot of Americans. True conservatism will make it better for a kid who grew up like I did, dirt poor. What we have today is, is to me, not true Orthodox conservatism. It's protectionism among uh, the ruling class protecting the donor class. And it's a very insular political environment. And it's, it's been at the expense of the working class. So rather than to say, gee, Donald Trump is um, violating the various principles of the conservative movement, I would say, no, it's the conservative movement, so-called leaders, who have violated the principles of the conservative movement, and they're being overthrown. They're being utterly rejected because their ideas have led us to expensive uh, global conflicts that we didn't enter to win, but just to stay there for a long time. They've led us into economic disaster, huge debt, collapse of the economic system. But who got protected? Big banks, too big to fail. Who took it the hardest? The five million people who lost their homes in foreclosure. Uh, That's what's happening. And and people have decided that this isn't working anymore. They want a government that works for them rather than the other way around. During your campaign this cycle, Governor, you participated in both primetime and undercard debates. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of how the RNC organized the debates this cycle by national poll numbers, and how do you think the party should de- decide debate criteria in future cycles? Uh, the, the way in which it was done is disastrous because it it created uh, an environment in which very arbitrary, often artificial, 
and meaningless polls determined whether a person was perceived to be viable. It took nothing into account for a person's background, record, history, effectiveness, anything. It just was popularity, and, and that's based on how much airtime you're going to get on the cable news networks. In one two-week period between August the 24th and September the 4th of 2015, an analysis was done, a good example. Donald Trump got 568 minutes of airtime on CNN in primetime, 568 minutes. I got 17 seconds during the same time. Now, there is no way that my poll numbers are going to be moving upward when nobody even knows that I'm running. And when all people know about is that Donald Trump said something today, and here's how people reacted to it. And if I do get on television and nobody says, tell me about what would you do to reform the tax system, or tell me how you think that we ought to be approaching health care in America. Instead, the question is, hey, Donald Trump today said something about uh, Scott Walker. Would you like to react to it? So I end up becoming a pundit, not a candidate. I think what the RNC should have done is if you have 16 legitimate candidates, put all 16 names in a hat. Just before the uh, debate, uh, everyone goes and draws a one or a two. If you're one, you're in the first debate. If you're a two, you're in the second. You don't know till airtime. You don't know who you're debating against, and it mixes it up. Quite frankly, from a network perspective, hey, that's great TV, but it also lets the voters see the various mix of the candidates, and you don't de relegate people to a second tier. 16, 17 candidates, I think, the peak. Why are so many people running? Um, why, are there, why does it seem like such a free-for-all at some point? In, in a way, this is the healthiest thing that could happen, is that there would be a wide variety of uh, choices and opportunities. I mean, most people would say, if you go to Baskin-Robbins, I, I go because there are 31 flavors, not one or two. 31 are better choices than two. Um, you know, I never understood why many of the Republicans acted like this is terrible, we have too many people running. Really? I thought that's what, you know, a democracy was all about, was giving people choices, options, letting them sort out for themselves, um, letting people put their ideas forth and letting the people sort it out. The problem was the ideas never got put forth. Uh, it was a, a, an entire process driven by TV ratings and ratings mean revenue, revenue drives the train, so once again it's been about money. Money of the donors, money of who's making money off the process. It's a sad situation. Finally, Governor, what do you think is at stake for the country in November? Particularly, what do you think four years of either a Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders presidency would mean for the issues that you care about, the Middle East, religious liberty, and the national debt? Clearly, I think either one of them would be a disaster. Um, Hillary, because um, She's proven herself not to be very trustworthy, nor competent. You know, as I look at the record of, of foreign relationships that we have over the period in which she was Secretary of State, Barack Obama was president, and I've asked hardcore Obama supporters and Hillary supporters and strong Democrats to answer this question. Tell me, with whom do we have a better relationship today than when they took office? And they couldn't name anybody. They just couldn't. And sometimes they would say, Cuba, Iran? I'm thinking, you want to brag about that? I mean, we, we got sucker punched by Iran into a terrible deal, 
and the political prisoners of Cuba are still political prisoners and we didn't win anything. We may get some cheap rum and some Cuban cigars, but help me understand how the people who have been exploited and repressed in Cuba are going to be better off because we're going to get some cigars and rum. I'm not sure you can honestly say that that was a great hailing achievement of, of the administration. Final question. Who would you like to see take up Justice Scalia's position on the Supreme Court? Um, I don't know that I have a candidate per se. I wanted to be someone who is like Scalia in a strict uh, adherent to the idea of original intent of the Constitution. I do think that that's critically important. We have lived for the past 70 years under the notion that there is such a thing as judicial supremacy, that the judicial branch rises above the other two. That in itself is an affront to our constitutional form of government with three equal branches and the checks and the balances. And it's happened because nobody has stood up and challenged this really very dangerous idea of judicial supremacy. Scalia was a champion of the notion of balance of power and strict adherence to the text itself and its intent. And if you want to change the intent, then change the text. Don't just say, well, things are different today and this is what we ought to be uh, believing, even though it's not what the founders clearly believed. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Thank Governor. you. So I wanted to ask you a couple questions about the election coming up. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you, you haven't gotten any of those. No. Uh, so everyone commenting that it's a very odd election cycle, uh, particularly on the Republican side. Um, is this surprising to you, or do you think this was kind of an inevitable reckoning within the party? Yeah, I guess I certainly am surprised at the uh, uh, at how well Donald Trump has been able to, to, uh, to connect with people and uh, his success, but in, in retrospect, I mean, if you look at sort of the, uh, the discourse that we now take as the popular culture and how um, it's what people watch, what people do, what people uh, experience can help affect who they are and what they're what they look for maybe in other things. I mean, we are increasingly a reality TV type of culture, and so why is it surprising that someone who acts like someone on reality TV could be popular? I mean, they're popular on TV. Why wouldn't they be popular in, in another? genre uh, and so that I, you know in retrospect I probably shouldn't be surprised at some someone who's represents that type of, um, uh, of segment of, of society uh, is connecting with that segment of society uh, and as the overall attitude yeah I I think it has been a reckoning coming and I, I think the race in 2012 uh, contributed to that I mean we had a, uh, just like we somewhat in 2008 but even more in 2012 where the establishment sort of got behind the moderate you know, the Wall Street establishment candidate and forced it down the throat of the Republican Party when I would argue any, any really thinking person would say well maybe that's not the best person to nominate election season and that's not what the Republican Party is all about or what we, who we are and what, how, it's, how it's moving the party is 
become much more lower income, middle income to lower, even not, not low income, but lower middle income. Uh, it's not a party of rich suburbanites anymore. It's not a party of country clubbers. It's not a party of corporate uh, elites. It's much more of a blue-collar party. And uh, the leadership of the party is still those suburbanite corporate types. And they just don't understand. And they still don't understand. I mean, they, they look at this and they just, they're stunned that this can happen. And you see from the elites in the conservative ranks uh, missives being proffered every day talking about how you can never vote for someone as crude as Donald Trump well, um, you had opportunities in the past to head this off and you chose a different path and now you're paying the price for it mm -hmm. so uh, a lot a lot of pundits and you know, even like top Republican strategists talking about what's going on he heading into the nomination and everybody seems that there seems to be two camps of you know block Trump from getting the nomination or you rally support behind him it seems to me if well, you, you sit go, back apathetically yeah. about whatever happens and then try yeah. to pick up the pieces that's yeah. me <laughs> uh, yeah okay alright um, so I, you know and everybody says if you, if you try to block him from the nomination then you then you ostracize his supporters. But if you let him get the nomination, do you worry about the effect that this candidacy, a Trump candidacy, might have on disillusioning a younger, growing generation of conservatives? That's my concern of a Trump candidacy. Um, I look, I think people will figure out Donald Trump is Donald Trump. He's, I don't think he's necessarily representative of... Uh, of of a movement that we're going to have, you know, Jesse Ventura was Jesse Jeff Ventura was a one-off in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a unique character at a unique time in the history of the state of Minnesota. Uh, that doesn't mean that some of the things that Jesse Ventura fought for and believed in uh, haven't carried on in some way or another. But he was just his own. Person. There, there's not another Donald Trump waiting in the wings to replace Donald Trump. And, and so I don't think we should think, get too wrapped around the axle that somehow or another uh, Donald Trump is going to fundamentally change everything. Donald Trump is going to fundamentally change between now and two months from now. Uh, I suspect some things that he is now supporting, he's not going to be supporting anymore, and things that he isn't, that he's been opposed to, he's going to be supporting. Uh, because he will start transitioning from a general election, from a primary election to a general election. <clears throat> That's just, Donald is a, is, a, uh, is a candidate that is trying to put together a deal. Mm -hmm. And he understood, uh, give him credit, because he's smart, good at what he does. He was able to take a pretty good pulse of the, uh, of the, of the Republican voters folks who would vote in Republican primaries and uh, and went out and, and just like Barack Obama does with the Democrats, he goes out and blatantly appeals to that particular group. And when Obama does it, nobody calls him on it, not certainly in the media. But he goes out and appeals to Hispanics and to blacks and to single women, that's okay. But if you go out and appeal to white men, that's then you're a racist. Right? And that are working 
<clears throat> working men and women. Then, you know, you're a class warrior, where what Trump has done is figured out what Obama did four years ago and eight years ago very effectively, which is segment the population into groups that you can get high concentrations and real energy, and then try to turn out that group. That's how Barack Obama won in 08, and that's how he certainly won in 12. Uh, and Donald Trump is doing nothing different, and he's being very effective in what he's doing. You, would you, <clears throat> uh, do you think the, the rhetoric is the same as 2008? Do you think, would you, would you compare his rhetoric with Barack Obama's candidacy? Just um, for a different I, target group? Barack, Barack Obama's rhetoric was all about hope and change. The reality is all about dividing America. It's been the most divisive president, maybe ever, and, uh, and continues to do so. Today, even in Cuba, continues to do so. Uh, he, he's someone that uh, will go down as one of the great uh, dividers as president, uh, someone who uh, had a really a pathetic record of, of accomplishment because he chose to stay in his little camps of the groups. I mean, it, it just see the way he reacts to, uh, to any type of criminal incident that involves someone of color. Immediately out talking about it, highlighting it, as opposed to the thousands of other acts that go on, on a variety of different other things, but he doesn't talk about it. He focuses on issues and, and incidents that will continue to solidify his block of voters and continue to divide the country. And in that respect, it's, um, uh, he's proven to be very effective at it, and it's, and it's proven to be a very effective uh, general election strategy. He's been successful. And so when Trump now uses similar types of tactics, that's considered racist or bigoted or it's just ridiculous. It's, it's using Obama's own tools. And, and so maybe his rhetoric is more inflammatory than Obama's at times. But I would say a lot of Obama's rhetoric, particularly around some of these racial instances, have been just as inflammatory. What about the incidents that have happened at his rallies? Do you think... I, I don't know when a bunch yeah. of liberal Bernie Sanders protesters show up at a rally. Is it Donald Trump's fault that there's that there's violence? I don't think so. I mean, you don't see Republican uh, Tea Party folks storming Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders rallies and starting fights. So this idea that you know Trump brought it on himself—no, he didn't. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that that uh, the left, which has a long history of uh, of protests, violent protests. And now bringing those violent protests into, whether they're a Trump rally or my rally or anything else, that somehow or another that's the person who's holding the rally's fault. I just don't buy that. Do you think that uh, you're headed towards the, the, the Republican Party's headed towards a brokered convention? Um, it's possible for Trump to get to 1270, whatever, 1237. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's possible. It's not possible for anybody else to. Um, obviously, we'll see tomorrow. If he wins Arizona, that's a big step in the right direction mm -hmm. for him. Um, but it's going to be hard. I, I think it's likely he will get there or get very close. And um, if he doesn't, if his candidacy begins to fall off, he begins to lose a bunch of states, and Kasich and Cruz start winning more states than he does, then I think he's in trouble. And mm -hmm. I think he there, there's, a, there's an argument to be made that when the race got down to... Uh, to a smaller group that Trump couldn't couldn't win, and that the only reason he did as well as he did early on is because it was a 
crowded field and he was able to pull it off. And so the question is, does he have the momentum? Does he have the right to say, well, you know, I have 48% of the vote. I've been the consistent winner the whole time, even though I didn't get there. No one else has really risen or had momentum. I'm the guy. That's, I think that's a pretty clear-cut case that he should win, he should get the nomination. But less, if, you know, any degree less than that, it becomes more and more problematic. If, if the last 20 races he loses a majority of them, even though most of the states are actually fairly favorable to him, and he's losing, you know, it doesn't get, he gets 40% of the delegates or high 30s or low 40, then I, then, then it's a much more open question as to whether the nomination should go to him just because he has a plurality. If the plurality is not a commanding one, number one, and number two, if the second half of the race, once it got narrowed down, that he wasn't, wasn't successful in winning states. So all those things are yet to be determined. Um, as somebody who um, understands kind of the Christian evangelical base, why do you feel like with somebody like Ted Cruz in the race that Trump continues to do well among that those supporters? Um, because I don't think Ted Cruz connects particularly well with a lot of evangelical and, and faith-oriented voters. Um, if he did, this race would, wouldn't be that close. Mm-hmm. I think it's not just that Donald Trump has connected with them, but I think Cruz is a is a weak uh, alternative, mm-hmm. uh, and and in a large part because he's he's much more libertarian uh, as a, and and focused on more of these types of uh, uh, I would say sort of rigid libertarian type of, uh, of philosophy as opposed to one. If you look at the last few guys who really captured the hearts and minds of, of the evangelical community was me in 12 and, and Huckabee in 08. Mm-hmm. And we were much more uh, conservative as opposed to libertarian, much uh, much more uh, populist, uh, talking about more populist economic issues, more, more about workers, uh, more about uh, the importance of families. And it just had never just never talks about those things. Mm-hmm. And if he does, it just doesn't seem quite like it's really where he is. Uh, he feels much more talk- comfortable, you know, talking about how we have to rip the guts out of the IRS. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that's sort of, that's, you know, cutting and getting rid of stuff and tearing things up and blowing things up. That's, and that's just, that's, there are a lot of evangelicals who like that. There are a lot of evangelicals and, and Catholics who just sort of say, well, you know, it's just a little... A little edgy for me, a little harsh for me. The tone isn't quite right, and uh, I think that's where Mike and I were able to connect a lot better. Um, I'm glad you brought up Iowa. I want to end on a high note. Uh, I want. Can you talk about uh, your experiences in Iowa? And I would uh, be interested in hearing your opinion on. Every year, I feel like it gets talked about as to whether Iowa and New Hampshire should be first. And I felt like one of the most compelling arguments for that is that candidates really have to go out in Iowa and meet people and travel to every county and understand how a caucus works and how people will form coalitions and vote for them. If you look at the reality is that, that Iowa's been a pretty good, um, pretty good filter uh, in, uh, in 2012. It narrowed the field dramatically. Uh, didn't necessarily pick the winner, although should have, but it didn't. <laughs> uh, in part because we didn't get the win on caucus night, which mm-hmm. didn't help us very much. Uh, 
so they but they but they've been able to sort out. Okay, here are the top two or three guys you need to look at. And if you look at the, who are the top three candidates coming out of Iowa, you know, Trump, yeah. Cruz, and Rubio. I mean, and it's pretty clear after that they were the top three candidates. I mean, John Kasich, get, bless his heart. I mean, he's he's persevered even though he's won one state, his home state, and it made that into something terrific. Uh, but I don't know whether he'll win another state. I mean, he might. Uh, and and so the top three candidates were the three people that came out of Iowa, not the top three that came out of New Hampshire. And, and nor is that the case if you go back three years ago. The top three that came out of New Hampshire were Romney, Huntsman, and Paul. Were the top three out of Iowa were, you know, me, uh, well, Paul was, the, I guess Paul was third. But, but yeah, Newt was a pretty close fourth. So uh, Paul was sort of an anomaly in that case, but it, it shows that I think Iowa has a pretty good track record of winnowing out the, separating the wheat from the chaff. And, and uh, they did that this time around. They, they, picked, uh, they picked the three who they believe would, not just the right people, but the strongest campaigns to go forward. And that's what they did. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.